Uh, Well, today, guys, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 11, um, all the way to chapter 12. So we got a big hand dealt to us today. And so um, with that, I'm excited to to open the word with you. The passage we're going to be looking at today, the two chapters, are passages for which you will probably not find an Awana memory verse on. You probably won't find a cute pillow at Hobby Lobby with any verses here. Um, You're unlikely to see a cool social media post with a trendy background, uh, with a motivational Bible verse for the day. But as we look at our passage today, we're going to look at a passage in which we are reminded, which we're reminded that the truths of 2 Timothy 3.16 are still true, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for training in righteousness. And so, even though our passage today may be, at first glance, as interesting as reading a phone book, a shopping list, or watching the end credits of a movie, we will be soldiering on and digging out the truths that God would have for us in our time together. Now, before we read this, uh, before we jump right on in, I will um, explain that we will be reading it as we go, and as you can guess, we are in a passage with a lot of names, a lot of names. Um, and so, some of you may be wondering, can we do one more list? And the answer is yes, we can. But before we read uh, and jump right on in, let me read a verse from Romans 15, verse 4, to kind of frame our thinking. It says this, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And so, as we read a very descriptive list. My prayer is that we would read it and take encouragement and have hope even today. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right on in. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for what you have been doing in our lives. We thank you for what you've been doing through our church community, through VBS, through many other ministries, through children's and youth and college, through discipleship, and even flocks, even though they're on break. Father, we ask that as we look to your word, that you would help us to look at a passage that would be easy to skip over, uh, to ignore, uh, to skim over, and I pray, Lord, that we would mine out and dig out great truths for us as the church today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, as we look at our passage today, the way I'm going to kind of be breaking up our passage is in two parts. The first part we're going to look at is the willing repopulation. In short, what we're going to see is a long list of all the people who repopulated Jerusalem, the willing repopulation. And as we do it, we're going to see some principles uh, for how we can serve God. And then it would follow from chapter 12, verse 27 to 43, we will see the grateful dedication during which Israel will have a, a huge worship service, a huge worship concert, you could say, and from that we will draw some principles about how we ought to worship God and how we might make much of him. Well, before we go any further, though, because it's been uh, some weeks since we've been in Nehemiah, and it might be your first time um, uh, here at IBC, let's talk about what has happened so far. What is the story up until this point here in Nehemiah? Well, the flyby summary goes like this. Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, of Persia has led the people of God to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. It is with great effort and 
um, despite having tremendous conflict from uh, many people called the enemies of God. Well, the wall is built, and then in Nehemiah chapter 8, we read that Ezra brings back the law of God, and what we see is widespread national repentance in the hearts of Israel. The Feast of Booths is celebrated for the first time in a long time. And the people of God repent, and they write a new covenant in chapter 10, a covenant in which they declare that they will keep the old covenant, the Old Testament, as they should have been doing. Chapter 10 then ends by saying, we will not neglect the house of our God. And it is from that verse that we borrow and I title our sermon today, because what follows then is chapters 11 and 12, and we will see the practical outworkings of how Israel intended to not neglect the house of our God. And so if you see your little outlines, it should say, how to not neglect the house of our God. Now, before we go on and to really understand uh, what's going on in this list, there's a question perhaps we need to answer, and it is, why does Jerusalem matter? Why does Jerusalem matter? Jerusalem, even today, is a great hotbed for all types of uh, religious and political activity. And as we look at Nehemiah today, as they resettle it, why why is it a big deal? Right? As I was reading this, um, the question I was asking myself is, why does it matter that they resettle Jerusalem? Why not just, I don't know, just live anywhere? Why not just move away? Well, let's answer this question. The first thing is that we have to go back to Genesis chapter 12. The issue of Jerusalem was an issue of God's faithfulness. Because in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham three things. He promised them redemption, that through him all nations would be blessed, and that would be fulfilled through Jesus and his salvation that he brings because Jesus is a direct descendant of Abraham. Well, secondly, there, would be, there was a promise of offspring. So there would be as many offspring as stars in the sky, grains of the sand. But thirdly, there was a land promise, a land promise. And at the heart of that land promise was the city of Jerusalem. And though they had been given the promised land many, many years ago, they lost that promised land. And they lost that promised land because of their idolatry. It was not that it was not given. It was that it was given and they could not keep it on account of their sin. And the promise to give Israel and for Israel to keep this land was an issue of would God be faithful to his promises? Well, secondly... The other thing that we see of why Jerusalem matters is because there are many prophecies about Jerusalem being repopulated. Let me, let me take you to a few. We see at least 10 different direct prophecies found in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and Zechariah. I'll just read a couple of them to you so you can get the sense of what Nehemiah and the people of Nehemiah were really trying to achieve. Isaiah 44, 26 to 28, I'm going to uh, skip around a little bit, says this. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who confirms, skipping down to verse 26, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Going down to verse 28. 
And saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, her foundations shall be laid. What we see here is that when Nehemiah was rebuilding a wall, he was doing just that. Zerubbabel, who had come a generation earlier, we'll talk about him in a little bit. Zerubbabel had already done, verse 28, of the temple for which it said, your foundation shall be laid. He had already been fulfilling that, building the temple. But Jerusalem was still in ruins. And so Nehemiah, when he built the walls, he was fulfilling what Isaiah chapter 44 would say they would do. Then, as we see in chapter 11, when they repopulate and move a large portion of Israel back in, he is fulfilling verse 26 when it says, She shall be inhabited. To give you a few more verses, in Zechariah chapter 8, 7 to 8, it says, I will bring them, Israel, back to live in Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Because at this time, for all intents and purposes, the, the people of Israel had been previously scattered and scarcely a people. And then Amos chapter 9, verse 14 and 15 says this, And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. The idea was restoring Jerusalem to what it originally was intended for God to be. Now, as we also look at this, we also have to recognize that there is more to the importance of Jerusalem than simply a promise that was given and something taken away. The nation of Israel as a whole had a particular privilege and a particular responsibility as it related to being the people of God. And it was this, that telling people about God, or you could say evangelism back then, was different for Israel. Here in the New Testament, we are called to go to the nations and spread the gospel. But in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to draw the nations to themselves by being such a godly, countercultural, theocratic nation. Deuteronomy 4, verse 6, says this. Surely, that says this. This is what the people are supposed to say about Jerusalem. Surely this great nation is wise, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The idea is this. The surrounding nations were supposed to hear about Israel, see Israel, hear the stories about Israel, and say, wow. Israel really sees the world as it is, wise and understanding. They're called to say, wow, Israel is completely different from all other nations. Why? Because their God lives among them. They were called to be different. Isaiah 49, 6 says this, I will make you, Israel, a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The whole idea of how Israel was to operate as a community of God was a little different than the church. They were supposed to be such a godly nation that the world would say, surely that God is real. And so the idea of repopulating Jerusalem is about more than taking back a promise. It's about serving God the way he had intended them to do. So, It is with that that I bring us to our passage today. The first bit is a long piece. And so what we're going to see, I'm going to give you right right from the get-go, kind of our main points that we're going to kind of 
uh, see as we go through Nehemiah chapter 11. And it's first this. We're going to look how we ought to serve God in three things. To serve God with diversity, with anonymity, and wholeheartedness. And we'll talk more about that as we go. So, serving God with diversity. The first thing we're going to see is that there are so many people in this passage, and they are pretty broad. In fact, they're very different. They are diverse. And what we're going to see is that there is room for everyone to serve God, not just people of particular skill sets or um, people who just do certain things. We're going to see there are many groups of people. And so I know it's small, but there are 11 groupings of different people um, here. 11 groupings, and if you have your little outline, um, there should also be, I think, uh, where I broke it down into three smaller major groups of ministers, leaders, administrators, and soldiers. Okay, with that being said, it is time to jump into our actual text for the day. So let me read for us um, part of Nehemiah chapter 11. Here we go. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots Lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remain in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their own towns. Israel, the priests, and the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah, and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaiah, son of Uzziah, son of Zechariah, son of Amariah, son of Shef- Shephatiah, son of Mahalalel, of the sons of Perez. And Maaseiah, the sons of Baruch, the sons of Kolhazeh, the sons of Haziah, the son of Adiah, son of Joizarib, son of Zechariah, son of the Shilonite. All the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. And these are the sons of Benjamin, Salu, the son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, the son of Kaliah, son of Maaseah, son of Ithiel, son of Jeshiah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer, and Judah, the son of Hasanua, was second over their city. So we're looking at 11 groups really briefly. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I think it is important to kind of get a sense of who we have here who is moving into Jerusalem. So real quick, in verses 1 through 2, we get a sense of what's going on. The wall is built. Now the city needs to be repopulated. There were some already living there. We'll get to that in a moment. But we have a lot of people moving in. It says the rest of the people, uh, the leaders already live there, um, some of them living on Ophel, as we'll see in a bit. And it says, the rest of the people, so all those who didn't yet live in Jerusalem, they cast lots. This was an Old Testament way of determining God's will, maybe throwing dice or um, using some form of randomization uh, as a means of trusting in God. And it was what they did is they used that to bring out 10%, one out of 10, to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Let's look at these people. So first, what we get are the people who lived in Judah, verses 4 through 6. Uh, what we get are two, there are two main family names mentioned, Athaiah and Maaseah. But what you'll notice about this list is it's actually uh, parallel to another list in First Chronicles chapter 9. And there are some discrepancies. I'll go into some of them briefly, but... Um, I think what's important to recognize is neither list 
was intending to be comprehensive. They included some prominent names that the writer of Nehemiah or the writer of First Chronicles chose to put in. Two names are put here from the house of Judah. A third one is not included. That's included in First Chronicles. It would be uh, the family of Zerah. And all of these family members amount to a large group of 468 people. Of these people, it says they were men of valor, valiant men, valiant men. This was a common word that was used for soldiers. This is a term uh, for which in First Chronicles 12, it refers to David's mighty men as men of valor. These would have been warriors, trained fighters. These are people who were trained to fight to protect. And so from both Judah and Benjamin, we get a large group of warriors. And even if they weren't originally trained to fight, we know that orig- eventually Nehemiah had to train them Back, if you remember, when Nehemiah had to train all the builders to become soldiers. Well, then as we move on, we get to, uh, uh, we see further on, we get Joel the overseer in chapter 9. He was someone who was over urban government. He was probably someone who saw the overall development of Jerusalem as a city. We see Judah, the second in command. He's also a Benjamite. Um, he was probably second in command to Joel. Then we get to the priests, verses 10 through 14. It says, Of the priests, Jediah the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sariah the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshulam, son of Zadok, son of Moriah, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adaiah the son of Jeroham, son of Peliah, son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Melchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amishai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, son of Meshilamoth, son of Immer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of the Hagadolim. Uh, what we see here is a list of priests, a list of priests. Five priestly fam- families and then an overseer. These would have been from the tribe of Levi, but they, would have, they were counted separately because their responsibilities were unique. Five priestly families. And then in verse 14, what we get is very interesting. It says, and their brothers, mighty men of valor. What we see here is probably an implication of warrior priests. Probably um, Levites who both could do things related to the temple, but also were skilled in combat. And even during the time of David, we saw that there were Levites who were loyal to David and were willing to fight for him. Now, as we look at these mighty men of valor uh, these valiant men. I think what's interesting is uh, though the mighty men of valor in verse 14 is stronger, it says mighty men of valor, not just valor, it suggests that these men, that the word could be used not only to refer to soldiers, but simply men of great substance, heroism, men who are brave and courageous. And I think they use this word in part because it's more than their military might that is being highlighted, but the fact that they were willing to move and uproot their entire families for the cause of God's purposes. These were people who were willing to, uh, willing to give, as it says themselves, for the effort of repopulating Jerusalem. As we move on from the Levites, uh, then we move on to our gatekeepers, gatekeepers. Here we go. Um, I miss the Levites. 
Levites and gatekeepers. It says this, And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, son of Azrakam, son of Hashabiah, son of Buni, and Shabbatai and Jezebed of the chief of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God, and Mataniah, the sons of Micah, sons of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks, and Bakbukiah, the second among his brothers, and Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, son of Jedathan. All the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talman, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and the priests and the Levites were all in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived in Ophel, and Ziha and Gishba, who were over the temple servants. Let's talk about these gatekeepers. The gatekeepers were Levites, though they're not listed among them. They're listed separately. And these refer to those who be stationed at the gate of the temple, not the gates of the city, but the gates of the temple. Their mission is elaborated more in First Chronicles 9, in which it says they were over the chamber and the treasures of the house of God. And so their, their role was to take care of the rooms of the temple. There were many rooms for different purposes. They were also over the treasury. They would have protected it. Um, you could say that they probably audited it as well, made sure that the money was used properly. Uh, they were also used for security. They were on the lookout for thieves or threats or people who shouldn't be there. It would have kind of been like... Uh, um, for anyone who does security here, even our parking team, that would have been our gatekeepers, they opened the temple doors and they opened and closed uh, the temple itself. That's who the gatekeepers were. And so in summary, these were servants of God's people who had that particular role. Next, we move on to uh, the overseers. To the overseers. It's then in verse 22 that we read, The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micah, the sons of Asaph, the singers over the work of the house of God. Verse 23. For there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed position for the singers as every day required. And Pethahiah, the son of Meshesabel, the sons of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all manners concerning the temple. What we then see here is that there's an overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem. His name is Uzi, um, and his role was to be over the worship leaders. He was over the worship leaders, uh, as we see uh, in verses 22 to 23. The idea here is that there were worship leaders. There were temple servants, um, going back a few verses. There were all kinds of different people. And then we even get an administrator in verse 24, uh, Zerah, the son of Judah. He was at the king's side, so he probably was like an administrator, maybe an envoy from the Persian king who had to report these things to uh, Persia. And still, he is faithful to the things of God. Levites, temple priests, gatekeepers, uh, soldiers, all kinds of different people. And then... What we get in verse 25 is a list of all the people who are outside the temple or who lived outside Jerusalem, if you will. So all those people we just read about, they lived in Jerusalem. They uprooted their entire lives and their families to Jerusalem. And then we read those who didn't. Verse 25 says this, And as for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jacabzeel and its villages, and in Jeshua, and in Molda, and in Beth Pellet, 
in Hazar Shual, in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag, in Makona and its villages, in Enrimon, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, Zanoah, Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, Azekah and its villages. So they encamped, notice a break there, from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived in Geba onward, at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages, Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramath, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboim, Nabalat, Lod, and Ono, and the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites in Judah were assigned to Benjamin. What we see here is that not everyone lived in Jerusalem, right? There's nine-tenths of the people who are supportive of the repopulation efforts, supportive of rebuilding Jerusalem, choose to live in the other parts of Judah. When it says they encamped, as we saw in verse 30, um, the idea here is that Persia, in God's faithfulness and sovereignty, allowed Israel, despite being conquered people, to move beyond Jerusalem proper and to expand out. God was allowing them to take back the land that he had promised them, even under a Persian king. And so the idea is they kind of just spread out. And as long as probably there was no conflict, they were allowed to move out into the wider area of Israel. What we get here is the reminder that these people are mentioned not by names, but by villages. Probably whole villages or majority of these villages supported the work of what was going on in Jerusalem, but they specifically didn't move there. These were people who would have still had to be connected to the temple, and they would have had to travel regularly back to the temple to be part of the work that God was doing in Jerusalem. To give it some New Testament context, these people were the commuters. These were the people who were committed to what was going on in Israel, and yet they had to travel great distances, as we'll see a little bit later. These are the people who came. Out and lived outside. Well, as we keep on going, we then uh, continue on and we learn about Zerubbabel. Before we do that, let's take a few moments to, to mine out what we can dig from that long list, a very long list. All right, so what do we have for us? The first thing that we can see is that what we can learn from this passage is we can serve. We ought to serve God with great diversity, meaning that we ought to remind ourselves that there is a place to serve God for everyone, not just people who are all one particular way. It's not just for Levites, not just those who could read and write and knew the law of God really well. It wasn't just for those who were soldiers or those who were great administrators. Um, even included here, in this passage, it just mentions the rest of Israel, and that would have just referred to everybody else. There was a broad group of people who, with different skill sets and occupations and abilities who were all committed to doing the work of God, rebuilding Jerusalem. And as we import that and as we take that principle for us today, we are reminded that the church is a place where we should serve God with the diversity that is present in our church congregation. Even at VBS, we saw so much of that. We saw those who are skilled at building epic decorations, turning our stage into what looks like the planet Mars. Or no, it's not a planet, the surface of Mars, right? It's seeing our pastors and Sunday school teachers innovatively teach our kids in a way that if you've never been in there when they're teaching, I can only describe it as half Sunday school and half stand-up comedy. 
We have an army of crew leaders who brought so much energy every day, waking up early, being in the sun, coming with energy to keep their kids engaged. And one of our crew leaders was so famous for her energy, the 110% she gave, that Gary and Nam had to award out one of our kids an award that's now called the Sujin Horio Spirit Award. People of different skills all having a place. Some are quiet and some are louder. Some are more thoughtful. Some are gatherers. All different, all doing the work of God. And as we read this passage, we should read that there were many differences. And there were probably many more than what we see. The second, and this is borrowing from a time when we were in the list of Nehemiah earlier, is that we can serve God with anonymity. Serving God with anonymity. And what we mean by that is these people, as we read them, are largely forgotten to us. To the original readers, they probably would have remembered them. But after a generation or two, no one knows who these guys are. No one really remembers, even though they probably did far more than what is recorded. And so we are reminded that as we think about our ministry, that much of what we do will fall into anonymity over the years. These are the faceless, anonymous servants who probably did great things, both building the wall and repopulating. These are the people who uprooted their lives, and we don't remember much about them. As we get to this, we are reminded that church history books will probably include very few of our names for the countless hours that we spend discipling the next generation of our church. It will probably not include our tearful prayers offered for the salvation of the lost or the generosity of our offering. Most of our efforts given in this life will not be remembered by generations into the future as the generations go on. But when we pass into glory, we will all see that our labor of love and all that we did for the cause of the gospel and the health of the church, that though it was anonymous to most It was still important and pleasing in God's sight. It is the subtle reminder when you see these lists of things that are for and people who are forgettable, that even when we serve and seem like what we do is forgettable, it is still very important to God. How many of us can think of the nameless servants who make things happen so that we can worship today? We think of those who put donuts on the table for those who make AV happen. We think of the countless people who set up the baptismal and the canopies. Do you even know who sets those up? I often don't, right? It is the idea that the service of God is not meant to be one with thoroughfare and fanfare. It is simply servant after servant after servant, a name and nothing more. Because serving God is about serving Christ and honoring him and not ourselves. Thirdly, it is the reminder, and I kind of skipped over it on purpose, going back to verse 2, that the overall evaluation of how they served God and how we should serve God is with wholeheartedness. It is a willing offering of yourself. Look back at verse 2. It says, The people respond, they bless all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And it's, if you look back, it says they willingly offered. They willingly offered. They were volunteers. Now, I know we talked about how there was a, they had a casting of lots. And the passage isn't clear as to 
how exactly they did this. But clearly, once the lots were drawn, whether they took volunteers afterwards or whether once your name was drawn, you had a choice. But it says that all the people who moved did so by choice. It was a wholehearted offering of themselves. And so what we see here and what we're reminded of is that when we serve God, it is a full and complete willing offering. It is not begrudging. It is not obligatory. It is not a loveless duty that we feel is thrust upon us, but rather it is choice. And it comes with a heart that is glad to do it. There is no whisper of discontent or complaint. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 7 says, the way we ought to serve God is not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. These people understood that what they were doing was far more than just moving. It wasn't the same as buying just a house and moving down the street. They understood that they were signing up for difficulty and ease. They understood that they were going to have to make great changes in their life to move into a city that was in ruins. They knew they'd have to start up and rebuild schools. Marketplaces would probably not be the same. Farms replanted. There were easier and more convenient places to live, but they were willing to offer their whole hearts because they believed in the promises of God. They believed Isaiah and Zechariah and Amos and all those passages we read when it said that God would prosper them to re-inhabit, rebuild, and to eventually re-own the land. Some of the immediate things that might come to our mind as New Testament believers might be the work of missionaries, right? Those who uproot their entire lives for no other reason other than the cause of the gospel. They move themselves at great risk, at difficulty. They choose to learn other languages, to learn another culture. To those who go to frontier missions, as we learned about for those who went to the Radius Missions Conference a few weeks ago, we learned that not only do missionaries have to learn language one and learn the culture, but often for those who go to unreached people groups, they have to learn, uh, they have to learn the first language, and then they have to use that language to translate another language that often doesn't even have an alphabet. It's not convenient, it's not easy, and yet they willingly, wholeheartedly offered themselves. And God's call on our lives still requires sacrifice and service just like this. Diversity, anonymity, and wholeheartedness. Now, as we move on, I want to make one more note about chapter 12. It is from chapter 12, verse 1, that... Nehemiah takes a break from those who were there and were moving into Jerusalem, and he takes a moment to recount, and going back into history, all those who had come before him. These were the priests and Levites on the first return. Let me read this for you, and we'll kind of unpack this. It says this, These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Yeshua, Sariah, Jeremiah, Ezra, Amariah, Maluk, Hattush, Shechaniah, Reham, Merimoth, Ido, Ginnathoi, Abijah, Mijamin, Madiah, Bilga, Shemaiah, Joyarib, Jediah, Salu, Amach, Hilkiah, Jediah, 
These were the chiefs of the priests and their brothers in the days of Jeshua. Before I continue on, what is Nehemiah doing? Nehemiah is not talking about people who are present. He's actually going back into the past to take both a census of the original group who came to first uh, return back to Israel, but he's also doing something very important. It's both a record, but it's also acknowledging and reminding the people of God that they were standing on the shoulders of people who had come before them. See, Zerubbabel had come almost 93 years, had come 93 years before. This was the first return back to the people of Jerusalem. The Jewish people called this the first Aliyah, which is the Hebrew word for ascension or going up. It was the act of the Jewish people returning from the nations back to Jerusalem. And with Zerubbabel, scholars estimate there are probably about almost 50,000 people. And it is with Zerubbabel's effort that we read a story in the book of Ezra, that is very similar to Nehemiah's. In short, Zerubbabel spends great efforts not to rebuild a wall, but to rebuild the temple. And this was the original temple that had been built by Solomon, but was destroyed by the Babylonians because of their sin. Zerubbabel, like Nehemiah, faced great opposition at his building efforts in the form of deception and discouragement. And Ezra chapter 4, verse 5 records it. It says, The enemies of God bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius. Zerubbabel met opposition after his opposition, so much so that the Persian Empire actually stopped their building for 17 long years. But eventually it was rebuilt. Eventually it was rebuilt. And so Nehemiah is acknowledging that these were the people who came up, the priests and Levites who came with him. Let me finish reading that list. And the Levites, Jeshua, Benui, Cadmiel, Sherebiah, Judah, and Mataniah, who with his brothers was in charge of the songs of thanksgiving. And Bakbukiah and Uni and their brothers stood opposite them in the service. And Jeshua was the father of Joachim. And Joachim, the father of Eliashib, Eliashib, the father of Joyada, Joyada, the father of Jonathan, and Jonathan, the father of Jadua. What we then see here is a list of the high priestly line. This would have been the lead priest, if you will. They were, from, they were the ones who would have led all the other priests. And so uh, what we see is that the first one who was high priest during Zerubbabel's time was a man named Jeshua. Uh, Jeshua. And so he was high priest at that time. What then happens is that Jeshua had a son named Joachim. And though Joachim is not explicitly mentioned as a high priest. It is mentioned uh, by Josephus, and most Jews attest to him being the next high priest that would have been in between the time of Zerubbabel to the time of Nehemiah. Because during the time of Nehemiah, what we read is the high priest was Eliashib. Okay, so Joshua, Joachim, Eliashib. And so verse 12, we read more about these. We, we get the list again. And it says, In the days of Joachim were priests, Heads of fathers' houses, of Sariah, Mariah of Jeremiah, Hananiah, of Ezra, Meshulam, of Amariah, Jehohanan, of Maluki, Jonathan, of Shebaniah, Joseph, of Harim, Adna, of Mariah, Helkai, of Edo, Zechariah, of Ginnathon, Meshulam, of Abijah, Zikri, of Miniamin, of Madiah, Piltai, of Bilga, Shamua, of Shemaiah, Jehoanathan, Jehoanathan. Mm, sorry about that one. 
Of Joyarib, Matanai, of Jediah, Uzi, of Salai, Kalai, of Amok, Eber, of Hilkiah, Hashabiah, of Jediah, Nethanel. And then we get the end of this list of Zerubbabel here in verses 22-26. In the days of Eliashib, Joyada, Johanan, and Jedua, the Levites were recorded as the heads of fathers' houses. So too were the priests in the reign of Darius the Persian. As for the sons of Levi, their heads of their fathers' houses were written in the book of the Chronicles. We read that in First Chronicles 9. Until the days of Johanan, the son of Eliashib, and the chiefs of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Cadmiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. Mataniah, Bakbakiah, Obadiah, Meshulam, Talmon, and Akub were gatekeepers standing guard at the storehouses of the gates. These were in the days of Joachim, the son of Jeshua, son of Jozadek, and in the days of Nehemiah, the governor, and of Ezra, the priest, and the scribe. The idea here was that Nehemiah is reminding them that what they were doing and what they completed, because they're about to celebrate, they stood on the shoulders of those who came before them. And that's true for our faith today, isn't it? That all of our faith that we have, we stand on the shoulders of faithful men of God who came before us. People like William Tyndale and Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon and countless others. Well, as we then move on to our next part of our passage, we come to the grateful dedication, the grateful dedication. And it is here that we get a giant worship service, a giant worship service. It says, and at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and thanksgiving, with singing and cymbals and harps and lyres, and the sons of the singers and the gatherers the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. What we're going to see here is a huge worship service. And just to give you an idea of what's about to happen, they're going to have, they're gathering Levites from all around, and they're going to have half people on one side and half on the other. Just to, uh, I, just, just to give us a map, and I don't know how you can see that. For those who are outside, you can use your imagination. That big star is Jerusalem. Um, the Levites came from those three circled areas, as you can see. You can't really see, but Natofa, Asmaveth, and Geba. They were about between two to six miles, depending on which it was, given that the average traveler at this time could go about 20 minutes a mile, counting for like rocks and difficulty, and not everyone's a star athlete. It would be a couple hours. Now, there were also the people who came from Gilgal. If you can see that, they came really, really far, 14 miles away, which would have been about a 10-hour journey. The idea here was that this was a huge celebration that would have brought all of Israel together, all of Israel together. And it says that what they are doing is they are dedicating the wall they've completed, and they are going to praise God and worship him for what he has done. And so we're here reminded from verse 27, as well as verse 43, if we skip down, which says, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, The woman and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. 
Uh, What we see here and what's important to recognize is the manner in which they respond to what God has done is that of tremendous joy. It is not cold. It is not robotic. It is not obligatory. It's not like reading the Pledge of Allegiance. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, when I heard the Pledge of Allegiance come out, I would just say it, you know, I pledge allegiance to the flag. They were dead words. Even for the national anthem, we just kind of, I just sang it. But what it says is their response to God's faithfulness in rebuilding the wall is that of ecstatic joy, gladness, and thanksgiving. It is the reminder that when we worship God, when we worship him and we praise him, we are praising him for what he has done and who he is, for what he is doing today, even if we can't see it, for what he's done for us in the past in saving our souls and praising him for what he will one day do for us when he brings us into heaven with him. You can imagine that when they sung with their lips, they savored every precious word that they sang, not just spewing out words to melodies. It is the reminder that the heart with which we come to worship God should be that of joy and thanksgiving. We are proclaiming truth to the music that is played. The next thing that we're going to see is that we ought to worship God with volume and musicality. Let's look at this. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south and one wall to the dung gate. And after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah. And Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah. And certain of the priests' sons with trumpets. Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micaiah, the son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives. Shemaiah, Azarel, Milalai, Gilalai, Ma'ai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The idea was they had half of this giant choir that the Levites had assembled on one side wall. It was actually the southern part, and it was filling the wall. The wall would have been about nine feet wide, And they would have looked up and seen this entire choir of Levites up there. Then what we get is the other group. And this is where we actually have Nehemiah come back into the story after not really being in it. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north. And I, Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of the Yeshanah, and by the fish gate and the tower of Hananel and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate. And they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And the priests Eliakim, Maaseah, Minamin, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, Hananiah with trumpets, and Maaseah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy, Women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What we see here, we're going to have to be a little quicker here. The idea here was that when they sang, they sang with musical instruments. Let's start with musicality first. What we're reminded of is that worshiping God in the form of music is not just something that we made up as a form of expressing ourselves. It's something that throughout Scripture is, is commanded. 
Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, there are people who are specifically designed to be musical players and singers. Psalm 100, verses 1 through 2 says, Make a joyful to the noise all the earth. How do we do it? Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. There are so many verses that talk about making a beautiful noise with musical instruments. And so as we hear music played here at church, we're reminded that the form of worship that we should support and encourage should be that of music. And so our musicians are doing more than just playing instruments. They are worshiping and helping us worship in the way God intended us to. And if you can think about music, right, there's something unique about music when it's played to instruments and song that has the ability to lift our hearts in ways that simply just reading scripture uh, can't. There's something unique about lifting our voice. And the passage says that they sang with great joy. It says they were loud, so loud that they could be heard far away. And though we ought not to mistake thinking that just being loud, it should be equated with holiness and authentic worship, if we are joyful, it should generally translate into the volume with which we sing. Not that there's not a place for contemplative uh, songs and things like that. But in general, worship should be loud. In fact, what it says is it was so loud that the surrounding peoples could hear. And as we think about our worship, we ought to support and sing uh, to God in worship in a way that is musical, in a way that is loud to those around us and to even those who might be outside. And as a side note, we also even notice that worship here is with the entire family. It says there's worship with women and children. Nextly, what we see is that we ought to worship God with our wallet. What we see here is in Nehemiah, uh, it ends by talking about how they not only had a great worship conference, praise conference, but they then set themselves up to perpetuate the ministry of the temple. Let me finish reading our passage. It says, On that day, verse 44, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. We see that as a means of being grateful and thankful for the ministry that Levites and priests were doing, They appointed men, people, to take offering, to support the ministry of the temple so it wouldn't just be a flash in the pan, so that the ministry of God would continue. Verse 45 says, And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgivings to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for Aaron. The idea here was they worshiped God with their wallet. They set apart people to make sure that the ministry of God could continue to make sure that the ministry of God could be supported with what they spent their money on. And what we see here, and we're going to have to go a little short because we have a VBS video that we have to make time for, what we're reminded of is that the worship of God is not just with our voices, it's where we spend what we have. And this isn't just mere pragmatism, right? Because 1 Timothy chapter 6 reminds us this in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, I charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good and to be generous and ready to share. It is the reminder that for those who are rich, and I think by the rest of the world standards, all of us in this room are rich, that if we are not careful, we can trust in the hope and the uncertainty of human riches rather than that of God. We are called to be generous and ready to share. And if, as we do that, that's the only way to truly invest in treasures that will last for eternity. As one pastor put it, nothing but regular, disciplined, loving giving can hold back the spiritual onslaught of constant success. God calls us in our worship to not only express our joy, but to show it by giving back to the things of the Lord. And lastly, worship should be with order and attention to Scripture. The worship that we see here, that we read about here, is not random. It's not uh, just uh, that everyone just winging it. We see our God as a God of order. He is pleased by how, we or- how things were organized. We see here that they had a certain way. One group went up one way, the other group went up the other way. We sing that they instituted who would worship and things like that. And so even of our own church service, as we look at it, the worship order isn't random. You'll notice it's the same way. It's thoughtfully made. And though there's freedom for how we do it, the idea here is to make God the emphasis. And it's the idea for worship to be that which points people to God. We also see that worship is supposed to have attention to Scripture. What it says in verse 45, it says, They worshiped how? According to the command of David and his son Solomon. It means that our musical worship should be consistent with sound doctrine. When you sing, are you thinking about what you're saying? Do you agree with it? And I know our elders and our leaders put great care into the truths they put on our lips when we sing. We are reminded that worship is not merely meant to be an experience or a form of entertainment, but rather it is to move the soul through the means of music to see Christ as he truly is. Worship according to Scripture. Now, as we rush to a close, I want to bring this all back together. If we ask ourselves the singular question, how do we not neglect the house of our God? Well, we can be reminded, reminded that we ought to serve the Lord with diversity, anonymity, and wholeheartedness, that our worship ought to be with gladness and thanksgiving, with volume and musicality, with our wallet and with order and attention to Scripture. And so to the unsaved in this room, I would speak to you and I would encourage you, if you've been neglecting God as you have been, I encourage you to willingly offer yourself to him who offers salvation through Jesus Christ each and every day. Do not neglect him any longer. For the wavering, if you feel your your faith weak, neglect him no longer in not running to him and run to him and remember the joy like when you were first saved. And for the committed who are doing just that and are committed to not neglecting the house of our God, let us persist in the cause of Christ, knowing that it will all be worth it. Let us be like these men and these women who said we will not neglect the house of our God, who willingly offered their lives and their pocketbooks and their time for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, though it was a list of things and people, Lord, we pray that we would see ourselves in the countless individuals who served long forgotten yet faithful. We pray, Lord, that we would seek to serve you well and to offer our very lives for the cause of Christ. May we worship you in spirit and truth. And may all we do be a willing and joyful offering in your name.
We love you, Lord. Amen.